0: Amen. You, Amen. Good to be here again this evening. I regret that I can't always engage in the song service. I don't have the voice for it anymore. After many, many years of straining my voice preaching, what little voice I've got left I have to, I have to save. But uh, I sing, I try to make a joyful noise in my heart. And uh, thank you for those good, godly songs. A lot of churches are getting away from the hymns. Uh, They're kind of old-fashioned, and we want the more modern music. We want the contemporary music. I know of a church right now that uh, the song leader went and told the pastor, he said, we want to move to a more contemporary song service. And uh, he said, not while I'm pastor. Uh, We're not going to do that. And he said, well, you don't understand. He said, we're going to leave if we don't, if we don't do what... Uh, the, he said, well, you'll just have to leave. And he did. He took about half the church with him. Uh, what, what a tragedy. Amen. But we stay with the old hymns. Those old songwriters, uh, they got their songs from the scriptures. And, and they were singing songs that they derived from scripture. Break thou the bread of life. That's, that's straight out of the Bible, straight out of the Gospel of John. Well, I'm glad you're here with us tonight. Once again, a, a real blessing, as always, to be uh, in Brother Glenn's home and enjoy the fellowship there with her and st- him, he Sister Pam. And, uh, you know, when, you, when you, you hear a lot of repetition, uh, Brother Glenn brought the lesson this morning, and I came right behind him and uh, said some of the, most of the same things he said the same thing is going to be true tonight uh, in, the, in the men's Sunday school lesson tonight. Much of what Brother Tim brought out is going to be the focal point of my message. But if you have your Bible tonight, Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. I memorized a good a, a portion of this chapter 3 because I... I have to quote it to myself quite often. How shall a young man cleanse his ways by taking heed thereto according to my word? Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And Of course, part of that armor that Brother Tim pointed to tonight, the only offensive weapon we have is the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The word of God. And if we're going to do battle in this world, we have to be saturated with the Word of God. Colossians chapter 3. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, you're to underline this, then shall ye also appear with Him in glory. That's one of those blessed promises of the Word. But look at verse 5. There was a positive, now we have the negative. Mortify, we get our word mortician from this word. Mortify, therefore, once again, something we have to do. Mortify, therefore, your members, which are upon the earth. That's that's the faculty. That's your mind. That's your emotions. That's the members of your body. Mortify, therefore, your members upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affections. uh, That's depraved passions. Evil concupiscence. That's unlawful sexual passion. And covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake, the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in which ye also walked sometime at one time when you lived in them. But now, but now, ye also put off these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth, lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created created him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your precious word. We're thankful, Lord, that we have an instruction book on how to live the Christian life, that we don't have to try to uh, guess on what will please you as we live from day to day, but you've set forth very clearly and very plainly in your word how you would have us to live. We have a copy of it in our language, in the English language, so that we can read and understand. We don't have to know Greek or Hebrew, but we can, we can read your Bible in the English language. You have blessed us with that. And we thank you for those men and days gone by who've made that possible through translations of the Bible. Bless us now as we enjoy this time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're familiar with the Pauline epistles, Paul has a a particular method he uses in almost all of his letters. He always begins with doctrine, he always always lays a foundation of doctrinal truth. A lot of people say, Well, I don't like doctrine. Well, you you can't read your Bible (laughs) if you don't like doctrine. The Bible's full of doctrine. Say, Well, doctrine divides. Well, it's supposed to, it's supposed to divide. But he lays down a foundation of doctrine, and, and, but he doesn't stop there. Then he takes that doctrine and he makes pract- practical applications to how we're to live day by day. He does this in almost every one of his epistles, and he certainly does it here. So uh, you always read the Bible in context, uh, so you, you need to have a setting uh, as you read your Bible and understand it in the context in which you find it. So verses, uh, chapters 1 and 2, are, are the foundational parts that you need to understand before you can really lay hold on the practical aspects of chapter 3. Now, I certainly don't have the time, or you would want to take me the time to uh, go in detail in chapters 1 and 2, but give you a brief overview. Uh, he, he begins by... Uh, setting forth Christ who shares all the divine essence of the heavenly father and and he tells us that Jesus is the uh, is the firstborn of all all of every creature and of course the Jehovah's witness jump on this and and say that Jesus is a created being they'll go to this passage and they'll read this to you is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of every creature and then they'll, they'll say, well, you see there, he's firstborn. He, he, but that word firstborn can mean two things. It can mean, mean the first one born. It can mean that and does mean that in many places. But in the context here, it means that Christ is preeminent. And you can prove that by going back to, uh, uh, and look at Ephraim and Manasseh when Ephraim was called the firstborn of God, even though he was not the firstborn son, but God gave Ephraim the preeminence. So Jesus is the firstborn. But you you read in verse 16, and it's obvious then that Jesus cannot be a creature because he made all things. So how can if he's a creature, he couldn't make all things, but but he made all things. They're in heaven and earth, Visible, invisible, he's the creator of all things, and by him all things consist. Now we really couldn't understand uh, this by him, by him all things consist, until we begin to understand uh, the atomic structure of matter and the incredible forces uh, that are within the atom that that hold everything together. And that's the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. By Him, all things consist. And uh, the fullness of the Father. So he talks about Christ. And then he goes on to share with us how Christ, by His sacrificial death, has made it possible for us to be reconciled to God. And we talked about that this morning. And it reminds us what we were by nature. We were alienated from God. Our carnal minds had made us the enemy of God. And the carnality of our, of our minds was manifested by wicked works. Uh, but there's been a, a glorious change. And by his death on the cross, now he's able to present us to God as those who are holy, blameless, and without reproof. And this is, he does this because we have the very righteousness of Christ himself. If we were depending upon us, we certainly couldn't be holy and harmless and without reproof. Uh, but we have the very righteousness of Christ. And this is true because God has imputed to us, put to our account, the righteousness of Christ and has placed us in Christ. Now, the big, the, the, the truth that he's going to develop in Colossians, one of the main truths, is our, is our glorious union with Christ now this was a mystery to Old Testament saints now when you heard when you hear the word mystery in the Bible don't use it in the same way we think of mystery in in our day-to-day mystery It's, it's mystery in the Bible means something that was previously concealed but now has been revealed So the old covenant saints, they were just as saved as we are, but they didn't have the full revelation of God that we have, and they knew absolutely nothing about the union that we have with Christ. Now, there's hints of it in the Old Testament. Jeremiah said, "...but this uh, this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel." After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts. Under the old dispensation, the covenant was in a written code. It was in the Ten Commandments. But God says, no, I'm going to write those laws in your heart. And write them in their heart and we'll be their God and they shall be my people. Ezekiel talked about, I will give them a one heart and I will put a new spirit within them, that's the Holy Spirit, And I will take away the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. And so we come to the New Testament, and the New Testament unfolds these great prophecies, uh, these ancient prophecies, how that God the Father and God the Son would indwell the believer through God the Holy Spirit. That's a new covenant blessing that the old covenant saints did not enjoy that does not make us any better than them It just means we have a a deeper revelation than they had and so uh, the new testament uh, the new testament truth is is he said in is christ in us the hope of glory then in chapter two he begins to uh, work out some practical truths based upon these doctrinal truths Our, and of course the the, the, the big truth is, the, is our union with Christ, and, of course, you know that union was made possible uh, by the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. Jesus died for us. His death was substitutionary. He, he died in our stead. That's the picture of all of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Uh, see, the law was given uh, to, to Israel, but they couldn't keep it. And so built into the very law, which God knew they could not keep, the law was given to show them that they were law breakers. The law was never given to Israel that somehow they could keep the law and become righteous. That's, that's a misapplication of the law. That was never God's purpose in giving the law. The law was given to, to show us that we're sinners. And so the whole sacrificial system was part of the Mosaic system to emphasize that they couldn't keep the law, and they had to have a sacrifice when they broke God's law. They needed some way to cover their sins, and that was done through the sacrificial system, pointing forward to what one day would be completed in Christ. So he he died in our stead, and we died with him. And this is very critical uh, to our understanding of salvation, we died with Him. Now, in what sense did we die? We certainly didn't die physically, but we died to the realm of the bondage of sin. In Adam, we were enslaved. We were under the prince and power of the air. We were enslaved to our bodily passions and appetites, and we were, in the, we were living in the realm of sin, And that's the only realm we knew. But when we were were saved, we died to that realm. We we were delivered from the power of darkness and translated in the kingdom of His dear Son. And we died to the dominion of the passions and appetites of our bodies. Now, Brother Tim has just pointed out that we're not completely dead to those. They're still there. They just can't dominate us. Because now with the power of the Holy Spirit... We are to bring these passions under control, under the control of the lordship of Jesus Christ. We died to the rule of our father, the devil. Uh, He's no longer our father. We've we've got a completely change of government. We're we're out of the government of darkness, and now we're in the government of light. And uh, not only did we die with Christ, we also rose with him uh, as... Jesus rose bodily from the grave. That's a very important principle in in, in Christianity that he had a bodily resurrection. There's some sects that deny that. I don't see how you can read the Bible and deny the bodily resurrection of Christ. But he had a bodily resurrection. But we are risen with him. Now we have not yet experienced his bodily resurrection. That's a yet future promise that is ours. One of the great promises in the Bible is that Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection and later we will share in His resurrected glory. But we have been risen with Him spiritually. And so the Spirit of Christ indwells our redeemed humanity so that we're able to live the life of Christ. And there's no more beautiful picture of this than baptism. And he talks about that in chapter 2 and how tragic it is that there are religions who have misconstrued and misinterpreted badly uh, the picture of baptism. They shipped me overseas after I joined the military, and I was in the process of courting my wife. She wasn't my wife then. But in my locker, there by my bunk, I had a picture of her my locker. So every time I opened my locker, uh, there she was. And I could, I could see th- uh, the woman that I hoped one day to marry. Now, my wife was not in the locker, right? She was a representative. She was a symbol of her presence. So when I came back to the States and we began to go out together and and someone would ask me, well, who is this? I wouldn't pull a picture out and say, well, look at this. This is this is Gail. No, I had the real thing. You know, I could uh, I could point to this is same thing is true with baptism. Baptism is just a picture. Uh, the real thing is what happened when we got saved. It was a spiritual reality that we died with Christ. We we were buried with Him. And we rose again in newness of life. That happened at the moment we trusted in Christ as our Savior. And baptism is a visible outward symbol of that spiritual reality. And you all know that. I'm preaching the choir. I know that. So, uh, but then he begins a series of warnings in chapter 2. And this is all introductory, by the way. And, and we, he, he warns these Christians not uh, to be beguiled by enticing word that would cause them to depart from the truth and he calls that vain philosophy both ancient and modern philosophy always originates from a carnal fallen mind and, and for the most part all human philosophy is worthless and it's almost all anti-god he begins to contradict a prevailing heresy. The roots of it begin in in the life of Paul. It's fully developed in the second century, called the Gnosticism. But it, it, it it's a prevailing heresy that that truth about God can be derived from an other source other than divine revelation. That there's secret esoteric knowledge. Uh, that can only be possessed by the spiritual elite. That idea is still with us today. By the way, that's what the whole Masonic lodge is about. That that they have some sort of secret knowledge, and you you have to you have to go with them and go through all of their rituals, and and you will obtain knowledge uh, about God that you would not otherwise have. But that's that's not the case. That's not the case. Well, the, the only, this is all that God has, has to say about Himself. This is God's final word, Hebrews chapter 1. He warns us there, God has spoken for the last time, and He's spoken through us through His Son. And we cannot know God based on our own human wisdom. Paul points that out to the Corinthians. The Corinthians were kind of falling in love with Greek philosophy, and Paul says, listen, you can't know God by human wisdom. You have to know God by His divine revelation. And then he warns them about departing from grace to legalism. And this was the problem in the church at Galatia. Uh, They they were being pulled back to a a system of legalism, uh, attempting to live the Christian life by an external observation of rules or law or whatever. And we have to be careful today. Some people, there's some P.B., I'm I'm sure you know some of these, who take separation, and we ought to live a separated life. No, the Bible teaches that. But they take it to such a degree that their their participation in separation is a source of their righteousness. And because I dress in a certain way, and because I don't do this, and I don't do this, and, and and, and then they begin to look down on others, who are not as righteous, quote, as they are. We have to be very careful because any, type, any, any attempt to live the Christian life simply externally always leads to two things, self-deceit and self-righteousness, every time, every time. Then he talks about the errors of mysticism, that seeking spiritual knowledge beyond Scripture. That's still going on today, uh, uh, people are not satisfied with the Word of God. And in their carnality, in their, in their fallen condition, they're, they're trying to find something uh, beyond Scripture. They don't, they don't like what the Bible says, and so they want, they want special knowledge. The worship of angels, that was very prevalent in Paul's day. And another uh, uh, warning is seeking spirituality by punishing the body as though living an aesthetic lifestyle will somehow uh, bring you to a greater spiritual relationship with God. That's the whole basis of Roman Catholicism, by the way. And it, it's, it's, it's punishing the body. They take vows of poverty, they don't get married, and they think by, by punishing the body that somehow that brings them to a deeper relationship with the Lord and that's a, era, that's a fundamental misunderstanding because our problem is not the body. The body is not the problem. The body is neutral. It's the indwelling sin that seeks expression through the body. That's the problem. So you can pluck out your eyes and that's not going to help you. That was a hyperbole Jesus used that it's better to pluck out your eyes, but he wasn't talking about physically maiming, physically blinding yourself. That wouldn't do you any good because uh, you've got an imagination and you can sin blind. Blind people sin just as much as sighted people sin. And so our problem is not the body. Our problem is indwelling sin. That seeks expression through the body. We have a propensity for sin. And the the the... The means by which sin seeks its avenue is through the body, through the mind, through the passions. Okay, let's get down to our missions. Now, when we come to chapter 3, the point that he's breaking, the, the, the practical application that he's bringing home, that because we're in a spiritual union with Christ, this should make, make a radical difference in the way we live. Okay? And he begins with if ye, if, if, if. That, that could be translated, it could be understand, sense. Or in the light of everything I've told you about in chapters one and two, because of your union with Christ, because now you're living the resurrected life of Christ. Now Christ lives in you. You've been regenerated. You're now in union with Christ. Therefore, if you claim that, since that's true of you, then here are some truths that, that should mark your life. And he begins to deal with our affections and our desires and our goals and our, the pursuits of our life. And, and if we've been risen with Christ all of those things now should reflect our union with Christ now in our unregenerate state our view of life was restricted to this present world was it not our whole we, we never saw beyond this present world what can i gain from this present world what material Blessings can I derive from this present world? What kind of relationships can I enter into in this present world that will make me happy? And all of our effort, all of our energy was pursuing and attaining earthly blessings because that's all we knew. That we were, uh, it, it's all we knew. And material prosperity. Career goals, sensual pleasures. Is that not what drives our culture today? Is that, and, and it's not new in our culture. This has been going on throughout human history uh, we, the, the desire for things of the earth. But in our union with Christ, we have tasted the age to come. We have been given an earnest of the Spirit. And so our appetites have changed. Now we have a hunger in our heart for heavenly things. That's why we're here tonight and not at home watching TV. Because we're here, because we have something better than anything this world has to offer. And we're assembled here that we might come under the preaching and teaching of God's word and lay hold on those precious promises that we, god has for us in his word and, and that doesn't mean we we forsake all of our earthly pursuits that doesn't mean we uh we we go to a monastery someplace and sell all of our possessions and and, and no it, there's as both tim pointed out there's a balance in life we still have to make a living right we still have to go to work we still have to uh, provide for our families but our priorities have changed radically Those things on earth no longer are preeminent in our lives. They are of secondary importance and our priority now, the preeminence, is, is, is the heavenly things, the spiritual things that are ours that God has promised to us. So the old songwriter says, the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And and then we come to the word for. For, that's a preposition of explanation, verse uh, verse 3. For, ye are dead, and your life was hid with Christ in God. So that means that what we were in Adam died, and now our life is defined by our relationship with Christ. Now, there's a day coming, when we will experience the fullness of our union with Christ. And, of course, you know that we're not all saved right now. We're only partially saved. This this body's not saved. Uh, My mind's certainly not saved. My emotions are not saved. I have a saved spirit, uh, but I'm I'm still awaiting, and you're still awaiting, the, the consummation of our salvation, which will occur at the resurrection. And on that day, we read this incredible statement, we're going to share with our Lord Jesus Christ His glory. Now, that's an amazing statement because we've done absolutely nothing to, to deserve that. Now, uh, in human relationships, many times men uh, are, are, are received glory by things that they've done. You take a military hero uh, like Audie Murphy... And you look at all the, the, the symbols of, of all of his badges and all of his ribbons, and he received great glory by what he did, what he accomplished. But, but our glory is all in what Christ has done Amen. on our behalf. So our glory is found in him, and, but he's going to share that glory with us. And it was mentioned this morning by Brother Glenn. Not only do we share in His glory, we share in His inheritance. And since Christ inherits everything, then we we will inherit with Him. That's, that's a wonderful, blessed truth. But And then we're going to get our resurrected bodies, and then these resurrected bodies will be able to emulate the glory of Christ. Now... We don't do that now. People look at us and they don't see the glory of Christ. You know, we're just regular human beings, you know. They can't see what's in our heart. But when we receive our glorified body, then we'll shine. It'll be a reflection. We don't have any glory of our own, but we'll we'll be able to reflect the glorious glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then, beginning with verse 5, there's another aspect of our union with Christ. We have died to the realm of sin. Now we're living in the resurrected life of Christ. The Spirit of Christ indwells us. The dominion of the reign of sin has been broken, but we still have indwelling sin, and that is a reality uh, that we all. Know by experience as well as by uh, uh, the scripture. Anybody that tells you that they're not struggling with sin, you can write it down, they're not saved. Because if you're saved, you're fighting sin. Because there's a warfare going on between uh, your flesh and your spirit. And so this ongoing conflict uh, is... is is engaged with the indwelling sin, and there's a, there's a constant friction, and there's no compromise. There, there's no way those two can ever come to any harmony. They're always going to be uh, in, in opposition. There's always going to be uh, warfare between our spirit and our flesh, and we're going to have to be engaged in conducting spiritual warfare that's part of the sanctification process. Do you remember when Saul was given specific instructions by Samuel? Uh, God uh, Samuel got it from God and God Samuel told it to, to Saul. Now the Malchi Saul, I want you to wipe them out. Uh, I, not one. I mean woman, uh, children, Everybody, wipe the whole bunch of them out. That was his clear instructions. Saul didn't do that. He left Agag alive, did he not? And when, when Samuel appeared on the scene and saw Agag still alive, what did he do? He pulled out his sword and he hacked him to pieces. Agag is a picture of the flesh. And we cannot live, let Agai live. We have to constantly take out the sword of the Spirit and we have to put him to death daily. We cannot compromise because we have to slay everything in our mind, in our, in our condition, spiritual condition. We have to slay everything that's hostile to our spiritual union with Christ. And he mentions all of these things that we have to mortify. And this is all part, to some degree or another, with all of us in indwelling sin, we deal with these, these particular things, uh, some more than others, but, but we all have this propensity to go back to what we enjoyed in Adam. And so there's a constant warfare that we're battling against our indwelling sin. Now let me draw the application, and then we'll be done. What, when we read something like this, we have to make personal applications. Not what somebody else is doing, uh, not, what, not what the, how the preacher's living, uh, not how, some, but, but how do I, how do I f- fit in? What, what does this text say about how I live? Okay, a personal application. Because I observe, as Brother Tim brought out in his lesson, I have the same experience he has. I observe a lot of people who profess to be Christians. You ask them, oh, yes, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. sure. What makes you think I'm not... They get offended if you even ask them. But but there's no hunger. There's no desire for things of the Spirit. And so that brings a big question mark in my mind. If you've got no hunger for spiritual things, how can you profess to be a Christian? That's supposed to be the focal point of your life. There's a lot of people who take a very keen interest in the social interaction that goes on at church. Now, I don't know anything about your church. Let me talk about my church. The ladies, from time to time, think they have one Tuesday night. They have a ladies' fellowship, and they come together, and and typically uh, they have kind of a potluck deal where they bring something to eat, and sometimes they... They have door prizes and they play games and different things and a little short devotion. But we've got ladies that are thronged to that. They won't miss that for anything in the world. But come Sunday morning, they're nowhere to be found. Because they, they enjoy the carnal delights of the flesh, but they have no interest at all to sit down and listen to the, to the Sunday school lesson and to the preacher expound to them the Word of God. They have no interest in that. That's, that's sad. No desire to meet with prayer groups. We have a, a men's prayer group in the morning, like y'all do. Uh, and, and we've got, there's four of us that meet. Four of us, we meet before church. Church.
1: But other the, a lot of the other men,
0: some of them are not able to. But there's some who are able. That's just there's not interested in praying. There's a lady came up to our pastor, and she wanted he wanted her, him to pray for some situation, her children or something. Something she wanted, and she says this all the time. And he finally got tired of hearing. It and He said, "Listen, the ladies meet every Sunday night at five thirty, right? Five thirty to have prayer." Why don't you go in there and pray with them and and, and make your prayer request known to them and pray with them? She said, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go back there. He said, well, don't come asking me to pray. If you're not willing to pray, why should I pray? You know, but she, no interest, no interest. There are those who come and they chafe under the preaching and teaching of the word. Not too long ago, uh, this, this same lady, I'm glad you don't, none of you know her, but this same lady, she was talking so much, visiting with her neighbor while the preacher was preaching. While he was preaching, he had to call her down. Can, can, you, imagine, can you imagine the shame that would bring on, on, you, on me or you if the preacher, the pastor, had to call us down in church like some little kid? <laughs> but she was doing it because she, she had no interest in, in the preaching of the Word of God. Yes, she claims to be saved. Some people think that enduring the sermon is the price to be paid to come to church. You know, well, I I want to come to church. I want the social interaction. I want the blessings that comes from church, and so I'm willing to pay the price. I'll sit out there, and I'll I'll try to get through the sermon. There's others who seem to have retired from the spiritual warfare with their flesh. They've kindly given up. They've kindly come to terms with the enemy of their soul. And there's there's no attempt whatsoever to discipline their minds and their bodies and to pursue righteousness. That is a clear commandment of Scripture. Scripture. The Christian life was never said to be easy. The Christian life is hard. The Christian life is impossible apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. But we're not passive in this situation. God has given us certain things to do. He left our will intact. He gave us the ability to choose to do what is right and to abstain from that which is wrong and we're to actively pursue that which is good and abstain from every appearance of evil. That's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible teaches. So those are commandments that are given to you and I to live the Christian life. No attempt in watching and praying lest we enter into temptation. That that was the instruction of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane to His disciples. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. They did not listen to that. They did not hear that message. Peter did not hear that message. And so what did he do? He fell into temptation because he failed to watch and pray. See, temptation, you know, the devil's a whole lot smarter than we are. He, he's a smart dude, and he knows which buttons to push. He knows, he knows where we're weak. He knows how to work us. He's very subtle, and you just don't all of a sudden fall into sin. It's a a gradual process where Satan very subtly uh, begins to work in our hearts and in our minds. And if we're not watching, if we're not alert, if we're not uh, acquainting ourselves with the devices of the devil, he's going to get us. So we have to watch. We have to pray. That's so important in living the Christian life. And being able to overcome the tempter is—we've got to pray. We've got to pray and ask God. I have to get up every day and say, Lord, okay, another day of spiritual warfare. I, I can't go on r today. I, I can't. It's a battle today. I've got to have a battle with my mind. I've got to battle, be a battle with what I what I look at, what I read, what I allow to bring into my mind. And Lord, I, 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 equip me today. And I've got to get up and put on that spiritual armor. I've got to pray. I've got to read my Bible. Because if I don't do those things, I find myself being defeated by the devil. And out in sin again. And having to come back and and get before God. and, And confess once again that I failed. See, our problem is, here's our problem. That we're so comfortable in our culture that we do not recognize our spiritual poverty. We do not recognize that we're in a spiritual warfare. And I want you to go with me, by way of imagination, to the first century. And let's just imagine that you are a Christian. You are a Gentile Christian, and you belong to the church at Smyrna, okay? Okay? That's in modern-day Turkey. And you are a silversmith by trade. That's your trade. You're a silversmith. You take silver and you, you make different objects. And you belong to the silversmith guild. Everything was, uh, you, every, every occupation was, it's like a labor union. You, you're, in the, you're in the silversmith guild. And you have to be a member of that to work your profession. If you're not a member of the guild, you can't can't work. But the annual feast day is fast approaching, okay? And on this feast day, you have to give honor to the particular God that blesses your occupation. You have to offer up a sacrifice. Uh, You have to have have a feast. And, And more often than not, those feasts degenerate into the grossest of sexual debauchery. Attendance is mandatory. If you do not attend, they're going to kick you out of the guild, and and the, the problem you're going to have is, how am I going to feed my family? Because this is my occupation. This is all I know. But you're going to have to make a choice. Am I going to bow down To the God of my guilt, am I going to offer up a sacrifice to some false god or am I going to be true to the Lord? But you've got another problem. You've got another problem. The yearly sacrifice to the Roman emperor is coming up, and this is required of all citizens under the control of Rome. The city officials are required to burn incense to, to, to the Caesar and to offer up a sacrifice on his behalf. And every citizen must say, Caesar is Lord. Now, you can have as many gods as you want, but Caesar, you have to declare Caesar as Lord. And the city officials are kind of looking at you because they've heard that you are a Christian, and so they're going to look very closely to, to you this year to see if you're going to say Caesar is Lord, and if not, you're going to be in trouble. Uh, You will probably end up in jail. You may be fined. Who knows what's going to happen? And in addition, you've got another problem. The Jews of that city utterly despise and hate Christians. And so they're spreading all kinds of vile lies about the Christian. this is all historically true and, and, and they're telling people that when when you Christians, when you assemble, you have all kinds of secret rituals and, and you're drinking blood. you have blood rituals uh, that, that you're even engaging in sex with your own children. you're involved in demonic magic. you are a traitor to Rome and all of these lies have went out through the city. And so when you identify as a Christian, that's what people are going to think. Now, in that day, life as a Christian was pretty perilous, wasn't it? Let's say, let's move forward to to modern day. Let's say you're a Christian in the Middle East. You're a Christian in Saudi Arabia, Ethiopia, Yemen, any of those countries over there. Now, you are a Christian, and by law you are a heretic. By, by law, you are a heretic because you have departed from the Muslim faith. And if your family discovers that you are a Christian, they will turn you in as a blasphemer. And so you, you, have, to, you have to be very circumspect in, in your Christian faith. Because if you if, if you will not, if you're ever discovered as a Christian and you will not renounce your Christian faith and come back to the Muslim religion, they're going to send you to prison or put you to death. Uh, you can't assemble in the same place because the religious police are just looking. And so you have to assemble in secret and you live in fear because Practicing your Christian faith, saying that Christ is my Lord, makes you an enemy of the state. We are the most privileged Christians in all of recorded history. We have more freedom in America uh, to practice our faith than any other country has ever experienced. We have been blessed by God uh, we have a constitution that protects our right to assemble. Uh, we're protected under the Bill of Rights. And, and I don't know how long that's going to last, but, but, we, but we are we, we're privileged. We're privileged. But with all of our privileges, we still have the responsibility, Jesus said, to seek ye first the kingdom of heaven, and all of these other things will be added unto you. So our priority is what? Seeking first the kingdom of heaven. We're like Abraham. Abraham was a nomad, and he was wandering around, but Abraham was looking ahead. He never never realized the promises of God, but he looked forward to them, and he lived his life looking for a city whose builder and maker is God, and that's what we're doing. And when we read Revelation 21, and that heavenly city is going to come out of heaven down here to earth, and we're going to occupy, we're going to live in that heavenly city where, where there's not even going to be any sun because Jesus Christ Himself will provide the sun. Amen. There should be a hunger in our souls for a more intimate relationship with God. We have a tendency to go cold. It, you know, naturally, we don't get closer to God. <laughs> naturally, we go to the flesh. If, if, we, just, if we just do nothing, we're always going to regress, always. You can't stay the same. You're either getting farther away from God or you're getting closer to God. And so if we're going to get closer to God, uh, we have to develop that relationship. Brother Tim talked about it in, in sewing. We, we have to be. We have to be sowing seeds. We have to be cultivating that relationship. It's an ongoing activity. It's just like a marriage relationship. If you don't talk to your wife for about three weeks, uh, she's going to have a problem, right? And and so we we've got to maintain this this intimate relationship with with god and we do that uh, by saturating our minds and hearts with the word of god and by prayer and and attending church and and doing those things that god has has required of us to do we we have to lay aside as we talked about this morning the weights and sin the weights and sin that so easily beset us paul says we have to flee fornication and pursue righteousness faith and peace we have to uh, diligently, J- Jesus says, we're to pray for the kingdom come. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know that is an essential part of the Christian faith, that we are eagerly anticipating the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our only, our only problem is, is that we have loved ones that are not ready for the return of Christ. But we're, we're longing, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We go, we go weary of this old world. We go weary of fighting our flesh. And we're longing for that time where we'll be at peace. And we'll rest in our Lord Jesus Christ and receive the promises that we have. But one day, if we stand before Jesus, we're going to find out where our treasure really was. That's a bad time to find out, though, to wait until we come before the judgment seat of Christ to find out where our treasure really was. And you know, this, you know what Paul wrote to the Corinthians, that, that the foundation that is laid is in Christ. Okay, we, don't, we didn't have anything to do with that. God did that. God placed the foundation, but then we have a responsibility to build on that foundation and there's different kinds of building materials. You're familiar with that text, right? And so you can build your life on the things of this earth, your career, uh, making money, pursuing whatever, uh, entertainment. You, you, can, you can fill your life with those things, and when you get to the judgment seat of Christ, guess what? They're going to burn up. going to be absolutely worthless. And that will have a direct impact on, on your rewards. Uh, the, I don't know, the Bible talks about being saved, so as by fire. I'm not sure what that means, but it doesn't sound too good. It, it sounds like that you lived your whole life as a Christian in total vanity. That, that every, only thing left is the foundation. You have not built one single solitary thing that is for the glory of God. But we are to build our lives with uh, gold and silver and precious stones, that, that, that is works that are empowered by the Holy Spirit that are to the glory of God. Now it has to be empowered by the Holy Spirit and it has to be for God's glory. So if I'm preaching so that I might get a good offering or get a good attaboy from you then my motive is wrong. And even though God may may bless the message and use it for his honor and glory on the day of judgment, would hay and stubble. Your motive was wrong. Because not only will God examine what we do, but why we did it. What was our motive? Was our motive to glorify Christ? Was our motive to to uh, help our brothers and sisters? And what was our motive? So all of us should meditate on texts like this. That's why God wrote it in his word. That, that the Bible, the Bible is, is not just something we put on our coffee table. You know, and and, yeah. and it, it, The Bible is the method by which we examine ourselves through the very eyes of God. The, the Bible, uh, the Holy Spirit takes the scriptures and, and scrutinizes our lives so that we can see where we stand with God. Do you want to know where you stand with God? Do you want to know? Well, get in this book, he'll tell you. Uh, take, take this book and take texts like this and begin to examine your life in the light of God's Word and the purpose being that we might line up with what God says in the Bible, what God says in His Word. That's the, that's the only thing that's going to count. So we, we've got to be very careful. You know, the Christian life is a lot more serious than most people believe. It, it's a lot more serious than just coming to church on occasion. Uh, it's, it's the very focal point of our lives. Our, our faith in Christ, our Christianity, it def- should define who we are. And if it doesn't, then there's something wrong. and uh, the, we, we, we need to get in our prayer closet and find out Lord, where's my priorities, Lord? Uh, help me to get back on track, Lord. I, I want to draw closer to you, Lord. I want to, I want to produce the fruit of the Spirit, Lord. I I, I want to uh, uh, engage my flesh. I want to be victorious over my flesh. I want to be conformed by the Holy Spirit. I want to be have the mind of Christ. All of these things are we're to be developing that as our Christ, as a Christian, and and that's, that's the Christian life. It's a pursuit. It's a work. It's an effort. It's a discipline. It's a way of living that draws us closer to God and further away from this world. Amen.